Roscoe Parker's story is lost in a sea of many cases. It also shows the terror that, you know, lynching brought, not just to the South, but also to Ohio and to the North. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Show transcripts are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. In January 1894, the Commercial Gazette in Cincinnati was tipped off that there would be a lynching in nearby Adams County. After the murder of an elderly white couple, accusations flew that a 16-year-old black boy named Roscoe Parker was guilty. Rather than await a trial, locals took matters into their own hands and murdered the teenager by lynching him as a newspaper reporter watched. Afterwards, a judge indicted everyone who knew about it, including the journalist who did nothing to prevent it. In this episode, we visit with Ohio University graduate student Claire Runkles to discuss the history of lynching in the United States and the role of newspapers in covering them. Claire, welcome to the show. Before we get into this specific terrible case, give our listeners some context about the history of lynching in the United States. Uh, First, I want to say thank you for having me. Um, So lynching in the United States, there's a pretty long history of it. Uh, What first started out as an extra legal murder, um, it it was really predominant in places that didn't have a um, sense of um, law. Um, So, you know, it was used as a means to seek out justice. Um, And it really started around um, 1830s, um, but there could be even more cases before that. Um, there's just a lack of information on that part. However, um, with the case that we're going to be talking about, the main era of lynching or a time period um, is has been termed as like racial terror lynching. Um, and this occurred from 1877 to 1950. Um, there has been some really great research that came out these past couple of years, um, specifically from the Equal Justice Initiative that has found more than 4,000 men, women, and children who um, were Black and were lynched um, basically for just, you know, being Black. And this case that we're going to be talking about falls within this, I guess, um, time period of lynching. So where were lynchings most common and what types of accusations prompted them? So lynchings were very common um, in the South. That is where like most of the cases can be found. Uh, in many cases, people were accused of you know, com- committing homicide, rape, attempted rape, theft. Um, but in many of these cases, there would be miscellaneous offenses or no offenses at all. And it would they would use... Uh, these, uh, I guess, accusations as a, 
means to agree to do a lynching. Um, there was also a very um, common instance of, you know, insults to a white person. Um, in some studies, that that was a very, although minimal um, percentage, it was used quite often. So when did newspapers start covering lynchings, and what were some of the early coverage trends that you noticed? So right from the very beginning they were covered, um, it was seen as a town event, local gossip, as well as breaking news. Um, as, you know, lynchings became more used as a form of terror to terrify the black community, um, they became known as spectacle lynching. So this is where you would have the large crowds coming for a picnic to watch a public lynching and things like that. And with those, you know, announcements in the newspapers, you would also find advertisements. You know, you had stores advertising sales for lynching. I found oh one God. in Ohio that advertised a um, sale for clothing to go watch a lynching in Ohio. Oh my gosh, that is unbelievable. Yeah. And I also found, you know, it, it was really a like hot topic um, for a lot of things. I, I found like, you know, agricultural reports that said, oh, Ohio can boast about his lynching record, but we can't boast about our wheat crop. Um, so that was, you know, the trends of like, you know, pushing it as like a, you know, thing to go take your kids to um, was mostly found in the South. But again, you would find little instances up in the North as well. Wow. I mean, we're going to get to this later, but maybe we should talk about it now. I mean, as a researcher, how do you go about digging into this? I mean, you're reading these just horrific things. Like, how are, how are you able to, to read through all that? Um, it's been really hard to honestly get through everything um, because, you know, I'm, I'm reading about, you know, the worst you know, the worst moments of our history. And, you know, with the case we're going to be talking about, the fact that um, I call him a kid because he's so young, it really pushed me um, to want to tell his story and, you know, want to show the lack of respect and empathy that was given to him uh, was really, really hard. Um, you know, his case, this case we're going to be talking about was the first one that really hit me in the gut. When I, were, when I first found it. Uh, and it has ultimately pushed me to want to tell and show the darkness um, in Ohio history that has been hidden, um, mostly because people brush it off as, oh, we're in the North. This could, you know, the horrors that we see in the South could never be up in the North because, you know, we had the Underground Railroad. We had, you know, we were a free state and all of that. Um, and so that really sort of pushed me to want to show, no, the, you know, the darkness of lynching and the terror actually spread throughout the whole United States is not just, you know, it's not just kept in the South. Um, and through like my research, I actually found a total of 42 cases um, from 1841 to 1932. So let's now uh, get into the specifics of the case uh, that I mentioned in the show introduction. Uh, I talked about how this all started when an elderly Ohio couple, uh, L.T. and Martha Rhine, were found murdered. A 16-year-old black boy named Roscoe Parker was quickly accused. How did Parker get entangled with this? So from the very beginning, it, it really it was pushed out because of his proximity to the Parkers. Uh, or not to the Parkers, but to the Ryan um, family. Um, Roscoe and his family um, was known to live very close to the Ryan couple. Uh, 
they also were known to help out the Ryan couple on their farm. Um, it was stated that like Parker's family were poor and part of the you know black community. Um, and another little instance that was brought up in multiple articles was you know the fact that you know Parker Roscoe Parker was known to be of bad character or having history of thievery. And you know these statements you know you can't really rely on them because you're also looking at how you know. A lot of these, uh, uh, I guess, points that they're making throughout, you know, retelling this story is, you know, sort of blown out of proportion. So even like I include it, but I I really want people to realize you can't just linger on that fact because in most cases it's untrue. You note that there was immediate concern that a mob would try to lynch Parker. And so he was placed under careful custody of a local sheriff who actually went to great lengths to fool the public on his location. Uh, This is a really fascinating story, the extent that law enforcement went to in order to try to keep Parker safe after he was accused of murdering this couple. Tell us more about that. So right from the very beginning, Roscoe Parker was moved um, after a short preliminary trial within his um, town because, you know, there was talks of a mob forming. And he was placed in the uh, custody of Sheriff Greeny in McManus. Uh, And he ultimately moved Roscoe Parker 15 miles away from, you know, Winchester. However, the mob that formed in Winchester followed them all the way to the jail in West Union. Um, And with these tensions rising, um, you know, Sheriff McManus um, received some word that um, the mob planned to take um, Roscoe Parker from the jail and lynch him on that very night um, as he moved him to West Union. Um, And because of this, the sheriff spread word that Parker was going to be moved to Georgetown, which is 32 miles away from West Union. However, instead, he moved him to another town that was uh, 30, 35 miles in the opposite direction called Portsmouth. And, you know, as the week, and so he was able to do that um, under that night. And, with this um, action that he did, he prevented um, any, you know, form of lynching that night. And it, Roscoe Parker was kept away in Portsmouth Jail for about two weeks. Um, however, as these weeks passed, a new year came and a new sheriff um, came into power. Um, and the sheriff's name is Marion Dunlap. Um, and during when he took office, it was around the time that Roscoe Parker's case was to convene in West Union. And Dunlap at the time felt that it was safe to bring Roscoe from Portsmouth um, and place him in the West Union jail for his trial. However, uh, word actually got out. Uh, He wasn't as secretive as, you know, Sheriff McManus was. Um, And so word got out and a mob secretly formed uh, that night. Um, And uh, as Roscoe Parker was literally put in the jail um, the same day, he was taken out by the mob. Um, so under the cover night, you know, you had a great group of, of a mob. It was like a hundred to 400 people was what was reported, um, you know, really convened on, on the West Union jail, um, and took Roscoe Parker out of the custody of, um, Sheriff Dunlap. So what happened after the mob got a hold of Parker? So 
before they actually got a hold of him, the papers talked in great lengths about the battle pursued um, within the jail. Um, Roscoe Parker, they reported, put up a great fight to stay out of the hands of them. And as he was being taken out, you know, you had the sheriff pleading that they don't hang him on the courtyard. Uh, and instead, the mob loaded Parker up on a wagon and took him um, out of West Union and towards North Liberty, which was known as the Black Settlement. The mob, it was reported that the mob wanted to teach whites and blacks a lesson at no matter the cost. But in reality, they wanted to teach the black community um, a lesson in their means. Um, and it, honestly, it gets to the point of Roscoe Parker's death, which is, which is pretty brutal to read. Um, the only moment that they really like give him a moment of being a human was when he asked to see his mother before he died. Um, and when they, after he asked that, he said, oh, it's no use. And um, this is when um, they basically um, find a tree um, outside of the community and uh, uh, basically tie a rope around his neck and hang him. Um, however, Roscoe Parker was able to become free um, and so then they lowered him and then hung him again. So he's hanged twice. And then after he um, died by um, hanging, um, the crowd then um, shot his body more than a dozen times. And they then left his body there, um, basically for that message to be sent. Um, and he was basically there until the next day um, by the afternoon. Um, his mother refused to claim his body. Um, it was stated that she couldn't afford to claim the body, but actually I found reports that they were mentions of them lynching her and Roscoe Parker's other siblings um, as well. So I'm, I'm pretty sure it also had to do with the fear of, you know, going and claiming their loved one. Um, it was also stated that many cemeteries um, in the county refused to bury Parker um, after, you know, much effort. A cemetery actually did claim him um, to bury him. Oh, this is just, it's so difficult to hear about this part of of our history, but so important that we do. So l let's kind of shift into kind of the other focus of your paper, which is the fact that newspapers were there. That's how we know yeah. about this. Reporters were there covering this. So tell us more about how newspapers are reporting all of these details and how they were there. Yeah, so the newspapers throughout this whole, um, you know, a story uh, or event, um, they really t treated it as a competition. Um, you know, newspapers wanted to villainize Roscoe Parker at every means as a way to captivate readers to continuing following the story. So they would, you know, the examples of evidence against Roscoe Parker that was given was a $5 bill underneath his bed and a pair of stockings, which were, quote unquote, believed to be the Ryan families. However, nothing really connected those two pieces of evidence. And as the story would go on, they would paint those out to be even more like, you know, the, the, the socks would be bloody, the, the, um, a uh, $5 bill would be bloody. Roscoe Parker, uh, you know, was known to steal from people. Like they would, they would build up all of these um, 
little points in the story to keep people interested in it. And this competition really went back to the mob because the lynching mob, because, you know, it was reported that reporters were there and they basically made that note that they were there and that they knew about the lynching was going to occur a day before it happened and made every effort to not inform anybody um, within the law that it was going to happen. They made every effort to come from Cincinnati to West Union, which was just about like an hour away. And so the fact that they put every effort into, you know, going to this to to witness it and to be able to report on it was a pretty big deal. Um, You know, they also, you know, made every effort to call out their competitors and say, oh, we got this fact and they didn't. Oh, we heard Roscoe Parker say this and they didn't. Um, They also made every effort to sort of go after Roscoe Parker's family as well. Um, After Roscoe Parker um, was murdered, ultimately, um, and the trial convened after that, um, they still continued the story for about a few weeks after it. Um, They would talk about people in the community reenacting it. They would talk about, you know, the family and what they're doing. And if, you know, Judge Lynch was going to claim another uh, villain type of thing. So I think this is really important work that you're doing, because I think that, um, you know, we're going to talk, of course, later. And the whole show is about why journalism history is so important. But uh, I think that this is something that we need to come to grips with as well, Um the role that journalists and newspapers played in this. And so going off of that, um, people may or may not be surprised to know that there were people who fought back against this injustice against Roscoe Parker, uh, notably Judge Frank Davis, who went so far as to accuse the reporter covering this lynching as being an accomplice to murder. Uh, Your paper uh, notes that Davis said, The newspaper concealed from the officers of justice the fact of the coming of the mob and sent a reporter to accompany the mob and report. In all its horrible details, another murder. There is such a thing as news and enterprise, but to become accessory to murder and crime in order to procure news is a dastardly and willful violation of law. These reporters are known, and it is your duty to indict them. What was your reaction when you found this? So honestly, I was very shocked. Um, one of the things that, you know, throughout my whole research, I wanted to show was that, you know, journalists were very um, compl- complicit um, in their, you know, actions. Um, you know, they weren't just, you know, bystanders off to the side. They actually, like, were involved most of the time. And so when I saw this, and this wasn't just one report in a newspaper, it went throughout all the newspapers I found, everybody was, you know, restating this um, because it was a statement from, you know, the judge. And it it was very powerful because taking a moment to actually call out a journalist and their actions. Honestly, I haven't found before within a lynching. Um, and so, you know, there is a common, you know, tradition of going after, you know, the lynching mob after lynching occurs, but taking a moment to call out specific people, especially um, reporters and stating what a what is a job of a reporter slash journalist is, is pretty fascinating. Um, you know, this was, you know, basically during a time period when, you know, journalists um, was becoming a profession. Um, and so 
you know, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, there was this moment of, you know, basically stating, okay, this also, this person was also in the wrong because they knew it was going to happen and they didn't do anything as a normal human being with morals would do to prevent a murder from happening. So we've talked about how some of these newspapers applauded the lynching, many of these newspapers applauded the lynching of Parker, but the Cleveland Gazette was appalled by what happened. Why was that paper different? So the Cleveland Gazette is a really, it's a big anomaly in Ohio. It actually, it's a black newspaper. So that, that off, that obviously sets it off to as different than the mainstream papers. Um, It was founded around 1883 by three partners. Um, However, one of the partners, Harry C. Smith would soon buy out the newspaper. Um, This paper was actually the first um, paper in Cleveland since the civil war. Um, And it's honestly recognized as a very big constant within the black community and, you know, the black community in all of Ohio. Um, They actually were one of the first papers to start a anti-lynching campaign um, in 1888. And a little unknown fact was they were actually one of the biggest supporters for Ida B. Wells. Um, You know, the Cleveland Gazette was actually mentioned frequently in Wells' pamphlet, Southern Horrors. Um, Harry C. Smith is actually um, known to be a good friend of Ida B. Wells as well. Um, she would, they, they would send messages to each other. So, you know, the fact of the matter that they were a very, they were a black newspaper, but on top of that, they were, they used their platform to speak out against, um, lynching, um, in Ohio. And obviously, you know, the United States as well was, was pretty fascinating. So a grand jury did not indict the mob and the newspaper reporter involved in this lynching. But from this case came the Smith Act, an anti-lynching bill promoted by Black journalist and legislator Harry Smith, whom you were just talking about. How is it that a Black journalist was able to talk other lawmakers into passing this? So Harry Smith was actually a very proactive individual. Um, He really got a lot of things done in Ohio. his whole life sort of speaks to this notion. Um, you know, shortly after the Smith Act um, was, uh, what, shortly before the Smith Act was uh, placed, he actually was involved in passing a civil rights bill um, in Ohio as well. Um, he actually, you know, being a lawmaker, he used, he sort of weaponized his newspaper to be a platform for a lot of editorials. So a lot of the reports you see are actually communication um, that he is giving to the black community. Um, he was very outspoken um, in many different ways and battled a lot of things in his life. Um, it's, it's, it's really sad because, you know, as much effort that he, you know, put into everything and trying to advance, you know, the black community in Ohio, um, he did die alone and on the job, which is, which is very sad. But, you know, without, you know, his gumption and an initiative, um, you know, the Smith Act would probably never be passed. I mean, it sort of speaks to now how it's been 120 years and now our, um, you know, Congress is thinking about passing a law, uh, a federal law against lynching. So, you know, having someone, um, you know, in the 1890s, like actually pushing for an anti-lynching law within a state is pretty fascinating. So overall, what would you say are the lasting impacts from the death of Roscoe Parker? 
So first, I want to speak on the local level. So the local, the collective memory of the lynching of Roscoe Parker in Adams County, where this took place, um, it sort of continues to push and serve the means to terrorize, you know, the black community. Um, at one point, the road that Roscoe Parker was killed on um, was renamed and included a racial slur um, to distinct the basically the community's actual thoughts about. Um, I would say Black Ohioans, um, you know, over time, uh, you know, there's people that are realizing, you know, how wrong all of this actually is. Um, I actually took a moment last spring to go and visit the community and talk to local historians. And, you know, all of the history accounts of this, this case is very it villainizes Roscoe Parker to the extreme. And people are now starting to question you know, that history and, you know, the stories that families passed down. Um, speaking on the state level, you know, Roscoe Parker's story is lost in a sea of many cases. Um, and, you know, as much as we, we just talked about the Smith Act, um, I actually have not been able to find a moment where it was used um, by a victim's family, um, which is pretty sad, but it also shows the terror that you know, lynching brought not just to the South, but also to Ohio and to the North. Um, and, you know, again, going back to Roscoe Parker's age, you know, his, this impact of this story that I'm bringing, you know, now up to, you know, the forefront of the memory of Ohio, um, there's a lot of people in different um, counties in Ohio starting to do remembrance projects for lynching victims. So, you know, the fact that, you know, he was so young sort of, you know, causes people to stop and think a little bit more, I guess. You note early on that the purpose of your research was to review a case where the drive for a breaking news story trumped the moral and ethical considerations of journalism. What advice do you have for journalists today? So, Journalism has a very deep history of issues involving the coverage of race. Um, you know, even today we find issues of it. Um, you know, you have new journalists coming into the field and old journalists that are sort of, I would say, stuck in their ways. Um, you know, the peoples and the communities that we are reporting on deserve to be respected and ultimately deserve to have their existence and knowledge. Um, the case of Roscoe Parker, as horrific as it is, it really shows the lack of, you know, respect and the lack of, you know, understanding that, you know, he was a 16-year-old boy and his family, um, you know, were terrorized in so many ways. And so, you know, as much as like, you know, journals probably won't, re they won't report the same way as, you know, this case, um, it's still good to know that, you know, you need to understand the communities that you're going to be in and you need to understand, you know, the pain that they sort of have. Um, yeah. And our final question of the show, why does journalism history matter? So I actually had to think about this for a while because, you know, as being a historian, as being, you know, someone that grew up loving history, I could talk for hours about it. Um, but in terms of, you know, this horrific um, study that I did and, you know, these stories, you know, I realized like, you know, there are a lot of deep wounds in every part of our society in America, you know, without recognizing what has happened caused by the people in the past and ultimately continued by those in the present, it leaves, you know, this wound to fester, you know, the greatest thing that we can do as a society and as journalists, um, you know, 
and as journalists and to be witnesses for justice is to learn from our past and to gather in a place of learning. And one of those important places can be found in journalism history. You know, we talk about history, but we don't really mention journalism history. And, you know, by looking at our past, you know, it offers us a place to heal in the present. Um, recently, I've actually seen um, newspapers going back in their history on how they covered lynchings and and basically stating how they were wrong in their coverage and how they, you know, basically pushed this false narrative regarding Black Americans and, re- um, and regarding, um, you know, how they were villains and things like this. Um, and, you know, basically coming to these terms and stating how they were wrong, they're allowing, they're creating a space for healing in a community. And, you know, that ultimately, like, really empowers me because, you know, by looking back in our history, we are able to improve our future. Well, this was a really, really important show. So thank you so much for being a guest with us today. Ah, thank you. It was an honor. Thanks for tuning in. An additional thanks to our sponsor, Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. (laughs) 